I don't need backups. I'm going to Harvard. It's August, which means a lot of college students are supposed to be heading back to campus for the fall semester. In some cases, they're already back at school. That includes students like Audrey O'Shaughnessy, a sophomore American studies major at Notre Dame. Everyone's outside talking, laying on the quad. Even though we're a little further apart than sharing a blanket, everyone has their own. Masks are mandatory everywhere, including outside, except for your personal dorm room with your roommate. It's safe to say that freshman orientation activities and back-to-school tailgating are going to look different this year. Normal campus life has been disrupted by COVID-19, and colleges and universities are trying to figure out how to prepare as quickly as possible. To start this week's episode, we talked to some college students about what heading back to school looks like and one university official who's in charge of figuring out how to do it safely. Okay, so back in March, when the COVID-19 pandemic shut down public life in the U.S., colleges across the country also had to shut down. Students packed their bags and professors had to download Zoom. We were all freaking out. We were calling our parents, texting, like, everybody we knew. That's Caroline Garrison, a sophomore journalism major at the University of Missouri. While her school shutdown only lasted through summer break, administrators quickly had to start looking ahead and figure out what to do come fall as COVID-19 infections continued to spike. Around the country, how colleges are planning to reopen varies depending on factors like population size and location. To be clear, there are no federal guidelines for how colleges should reopen. So schools are looking at local and state regulations and consulting with faculty, students, and scientists to figure out how they can safely get students back to class. To learn what that process actually looks like, we called up someone working through those problems at one of the largest schools by population in the country. I'm Art Markman. I'm a professor of psychology at the University of Texas at Austin and the chair of the academic working group for fall planning. Markman told us that universities like UT have been consulting hundreds of people about how to reopen all aspects of campus life. We have six working groups that are addressing issues from academics, research, health and wellness, athletics, facilities, student affairs. So those groups, underneath each of those groups is, you know, often hundreds of people who are working on specific issues. You know, we've, we've had several hundred people who've been working on the planning process since April, trying to get ourselves ready for the fall. But the committees have had to keep pivoting. That's because UT Austin is in Texas, a state where COVID-19 infections have surged since the spring. For example, we have fewer classes that will meet in person than we had originally hoped to back in, in April and May. So in fact, as of today's numbers, roughly 75% of the seats in classes overall this semester are gonna be online. And only about 25% are either fully in person or in a hybrid online in-person format. So that's much lower than we had anticipated where we'd be when we started the process in April. But Markman says while the number of students learning in person has dropped, the push to create a safe campus is crucial. People said, well, how could you even think about opening? There's a pandemic. And, and I think one of the things we have to recognize is that there are many skills that can't be taught over the internet. We have labs, we have performance spaces, we have specialized equipment that, that students can't get access to unless they're on campus. 
And so certainly it was a priority for us to find ways to get our students access to that. We also recognized that, that if we kept students at home, that that would perpetuate systemic inequalities that universities and particularly public universities are supposed to help ad address. Not everyone is following UT Austin's plan, like California State University and the University of Pennsylvania, who announced they are going fully virtual this year. Those schools going completely online make up a tiny fraction of colleges in the U.S. According to one tracker, they make up only about 4%. As for the other 96%, they're offering at least some form of in-person instruction, like UT Austin. The schools that are planning to have some or all students back on campus have had to make a number of changes, like in dorms, gyms, and the dining hall. Schools are reorganizing campus accommodations to house fewer students per dorm, and implementing things like shower and eating schedules to regulate the number of people using facilities at any given time. These restrictions also apply to the classroom, where many classes will be either less than 50% full, only offered virtually, or even held in different settings. What I think is so funny, engineering kids are going to be having classes in our school on-site museum this night for the first time in history. Also a bunch of big auditoriums that no one has ever seen before are going to be their huge new lecture halls for 20 people. Other things that could feel different? Toga, 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 yeah, that's not happening this year. Some institutions like UT Austin and Tulane have banned parties on and off campus. And they've instituted harsh punishments for students who violate the rules, including suspension and even expulsion. But college students aren't exactly known for rule following. So some schools have created codes of conduct for students to sign, saying things like, we understand the rules and also we'll wear a mask. One of the big things schools are relying on to control and contain potential outbreaks is testing and regular health check-ins. Big research universities that have labs on site are planning to test students upon arrival or prior to arrival on campus and plan to continue regular testing throughout the semester. Scientists have suggested that college students should be tested every two to three days in order to control outbreaks effectively. So you go to class, hit the gym, and get your third COVID test of the week. But school administrators fear that all that testing could create some serious backlogs in the labs and delay reopening. And smaller schools with less research capabilities won't be able to monitor outbreaks as effectively. As for students who do get sick, colleges have created designated quarantine areas, basically special dorms for students who are infected with COVID-19. But while schools are putting measures into place, they may not necessarily feel like enough. To be honest, they haven't given us a whole lot of what they're gonna do. We know that masks are required all around campus in classes when you're walking around, anywhere you go. And then when you're in a classroom trying to distance yourself as much as you can from the person sitting next to you. And that's really it. For Audrey, her campus is communicating the same code of conduct. And so far, a lot of people are following the rules. The university laid out the four core actions that we have to be responsible for while on campus, which is one, here we wear a mask, here we wash our hands frequently, here we social distance, and here we complete our daily health check virtually. So they sound kind of daunting, but also I think everyone's accustomed to this mask as a second skin at this point. 
But the big question is, will all these measures actually work? Because just this summer, nearly 7,000 COVID-19 cases have been traced back to college campuses. Markman at UT Austin says, campuses will be staying alert and closely monitoring for potential outbreaks. I think one of the things that we knew from the beginning was that this was a dynamic situation. And so we actually built a lot of flexibility into the process from the beginning. If our oversight committee sees that the safety procedures that we're putting in place are working, that we're not seeing a spread of the virus in situations in which our safety protocols are being followed, then we feel comfortable staying open. If, if on the other hand, we were to feel like we lost control of that testing process, if we felt like there were situations in which our safety procedures were followed and weren't working, those are the situations in which we want to take a step back. So as much as schools are getting ready to reopen, they're also preparing their shutdown plans in case COVID-19 cases increase on campus. Regardless, not everyone is confident that these plans to reopen are safe. Some experts are concerned that the reason so many colleges are rushing to get students back to class is so they don't lose tuition money. Colleges mainly rely on that money to stay afloat. And while some schools receive money from their state or the federal government, educators are feeling the pressure to open their doors or risk students taking their money elsewhere. Not to mention, making these adjustments to facilities, including more sanitizing and cleaning, and providing free testing can run up a hefty bill. One that, for some universities, is an extra $70 billion. So there's even more pressure to keep that tuition money coming in. And in some cases, these reopenings aren't sitting well with college faculty. Last week, 30 faculty members from the University of North Carolina wrote an open letter to undergrads asking them not to come back to campus. Students and parents have also started to speak up. They're asking for a reduction in tuition, arguing that if classes are partially online and the traditional campus experience is different, they should get charged less. But not many schools are on board with that and are still planning to charge full tuition, even if they have to shut down again. So what's the skim? Over the next month, thousands of students will be heading back to college campuses for the fall semester. But schools are facing unprecedented challenges to recreate, to the extent that they can, a somewhat normal campus experience. And they're trying to reopen their doors as the country continues to see spikes in COVID-19 cases. Students, teachers, and administrators who are going to be on campus will need to be prepared for a rapidly changing situation and potentially even another shutdown mid-semester. There's kind of a lot of different emotions, like stress is the main one, but we're also really excited, I think, mainly to be with our friends again and see people again, but we're very stressed out and we don't know how long are we going to be staying? Are we going to be here the whole year? How much do we need to bring? How prepared do we need to be? While some administrators have voiced concerns over their return, others are hopeful that students giving it the old college try will create a safe campus environment. The fact is that when the chips are down, this generation of students stands up and does what's needed. And so I think this is actually a good bet. And so I believe that we will be able to come together and do the right thing in order to preserve as much as we can of this school year in crazy times. So in the meantime, when it comes to things like freshman orientation games, students like Audrey are getting creative. 
So today we're going to be doing the social distance Olympics. So we've planned a bunch of really fun games like hand sanitizer relays, who can run down the quad fast enough, wash their hands and run back to their partner. We're gonna do one-on-one -on -one tug of war with six foot ropes, just infusing that mentality of our new normal into the games and experience so they can still have a fun, normal entry to the campus traditions but also emphasizing that it is important to maintain this distance and wearing a mask at all times. And realizing that taking precautions are part of the new campus normal, at least for now. So I think that just being grateful and recognizing that we have a duty to ourselves and to others to be able to stay here on campus by being here for each other is the most important thing. So even if it looks a little different, I think we have to bury our heads in our studies, try and do our best to balance both. But um, just being optimistic for the future, I think, is something key for college students to have right now. Now to our other big story of the week. I'm a savage. Classy, bougie. That's right. It's time to talk TikTok. If it seems like everyone and their kid sister is on TikTok these days, you're not wrong. For scale, TikTok says they have 100 million users in the U.S. That's almost a third of the entire U.S. population on this one app. But some U.S. officials have been very concerned about people using TikTok. Not because they're concerned about all that screen time, but because of national security. Here's why. TikTok may be the latest craze to hit the U.S., but TikTok is not an American company. It's owned by a company based in China which for many officials and national security experts is a bit of a red flag. That's because China's an authoritarian country where censorship is the norm. Along those lines, China has also reportedly rapidly expanded its surveillance capabilities in recent years. Think 1984, but real life. And the U.S. blames China for some high-profile hacking incidents in which U.S. citizens' private data has been stolen. To be used for who knows what. But for almost a year now, lawmakers on both sides of the aisle have told Americans, be careful what you download. Here's Republican Senator Josh Hawley in November. The threat isn't just to children's privacy. It's a threat to our national security. We don't know what China can do with this kind of social data in aggregate, what it tells China about our society. They can see who we talk to, what we talk about, where we congregate, what we capture on video. TikTok has said it doesn't give the Chinese government people's data, and it's gone all in trying to make it clear to the U.S. that it's not a threat. Think setting up servers in Virginia, hiring a former Disney exec as CEO, and creating an advisory council of American tech and safety experts. Still, that hasn't been enough to stop U.S. officials from being concerned. The military has even banned service members from downloading the app to government-issued devices and is encouraging troops to delete the app from personal phones, too. Last month, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said the U.S. was considering doing that nationwide, which is why you heard a lot about TikTok this week as it tries to find a U.S. buyer to alleviate those concerns. One of the companies that's in talks to buy TikTok is Microsoft. At first, President Trump said, no way. We may be banning TikTok. We may be doing some other things. Not clear he can actually do that. Then he said, okay, fine, I'm okay with this. But 
So it'll close down on September 15th unless Microsoft or somebody else is able to buy it and work out a deal, an appropriate deal, so the Treasury of the really the Treasury, I guess you would say, of the United States gets a lot of money. A lot of money. Again, it's not clear he can do that either. But he set a deadline of September 15th for TikTok to be sold to a US company, or he'll ban the app. So you may be asking. Should I just delete TikTok then? Experts we talked to at think tanks like New America and the Center for Strategic and International Studies said that you're probably fine. The biggest concern is that TikTok is owned by a company based in China. And if that company changes its mind, it could, in theory, hand information to Chinese officials. That risk changes if TikTok is sold to an American company, like Microsoft. So you'll want to keep an eye on whether that happens. But Graham Webster, a fellow at New America, points out that more broadly, we should be asking governments and social media platforms of all kinds to be more transparent about their data privacy practices, which in the case of TikTok, might alleviate some of these national security concerns. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Alex Carr, Julia Nutter, and Marion Lozano. And I'm your host, Justine Davey. We'll be back in your feed again next Friday. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com.